Over the last few months, I have read through the book of 2 Timothy at least 20 times in preparation for this series. It's not a long uh, book, just over a thousand words, so it doesn't take more than 10 minutes to read. And every time I read this book, I recognized this week, every time I read this book, I was reading it in a comfortable setting. Uh, I have this chair in our bedroom. It's, it's a glider rocker sort of thing that we bought years ago when we used to have babies in our house. And uh, it's a comfortable chair. I, I like sitting there reading my Bible in the morning. And, and I would read through this book after finishing my, my time in devotion and and read it over and over and, and trying to understand what Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy. And then maybe through the 15th time or so, it, it hit me that I'm sitting here nice and comfortable. And I sometimes have a cup of coffee and I'm reading of Paul who's stuck in prison. Just a few weeks away from death, he's writing this letter to Timothy. He's writing the... the what's presumed to be the last known letter from Paul. The last communication, we get to chapter four, this is the last few words you see from the pen of Paul. And you think about it for a moment. Let's put ourselves in the context here of, of Paul, an old man beaten up because of life, who's now alone. He's in a dungeon of a prison. He has chains on his hands, securing him to the floor, his bed is just a few feet away from where he relieves himself. He's in failing health. He's alone. There's no family. There's no friends anymore. Some of the memories uh, that he thinks back of his time of those closest to him are now, they're gone. They're departed. Only a few have stuck with him through it all. He's poor. He's destitute. He can't even afford a winter coat. And it's cold. This man changed his career midlife, right? No, no warning, no planning, no pension plan or medical benefits to lean on now. And his new business uh, is bringing consequences of trying to overturn a world system that is hell-bent and staying the course in its hatred against God. And now he's in prison. Not in house arrest with some comfort and friends. No, he's in prison. In fact, he's on death row if found guilty, and he will be. He won't be crucified. He's not qualified for that. Instead, his head will be cut off. How should he spend his remaining days? How would you, what would you do with your remaining days if this was your future? See, Paul does what he's always been doing since that glorious day on the road of Damascus. He pours himself out for the sake of others. His life is for someone else. He, he writes his last letter to the child of, in, in faith, Timothy, his disciple. And Paul knows what, it, what, what makes life a success. It's, it's what happens after he dies. True success in this life is that we are faithful to God and our ministry doesn't stop when our lives stop. And Paul knows this and wants Timothy to know it and to live the same way. And the purpose of 2 Timothy is Paul's exhortation to his disciple Timothy to guard the gospel, to suffer for the gospel, and to proclaim the gospel until Jesus comes back for his church. And that will be the outline for the sermon this morning. Now, this sermon is, is over the entire book. It, it's a quick tour through the book. It'll give you, hopefully, an overview of the book, and I've made it my practice over these years that when I start a new book, a new series, I want to give an overview sermon, and it helps me, really, as a preacher to understand the whole, but I, uh, my, my prayer is that it helps you, as the listener, to understand this book as a whole. So we're not going to cover every verse in 2 Timothy, but we'll cover those three main points of what a disciple does, and so I want to begin with prayer, and then we'll jump in. So you pray for me, and I'll pray for you. God, we have moved from proclaiming your worth and singing in prayer, and now we move to listening to your word. Unplug our ears, tenderize our hearts, and open our eyes. 
We wanna be changed from being with you. We wanna be made more like you because you and every aspect of your person are everything we want to be like, full of love and purity and holiness and grace and faithfulness and zeal and servanthood and promise keeping and joy and goodness and everything that is commendable and good. Make us, God, imitators of God as beloved children. And let us walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And do all of this for the fame of Jesus Christ, that it would spread across the globe. Change us. Fill us with your word. For your glory alone, I pray. Amen. The first thing I want you to notice here, if you're keeping notes, is the a disciple guards the gospel. Timothy showed his sincere faith by his faithfulness to the Lord in the local church ministry that God gave to him in Ephesus. Now Paul reminds Timothy of what's true in his life. There in verse five, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying of my hands. For God is God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. He's reminding him again of, of, of what's already transpired, reminding of what's to be true. And when gospel preaching meets opposition, the temptation then is to back away from the conflict. And as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, Paul didn't want Timothy to back away. He says there in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And I'm using this word disciple. In fact, that's the name of this series. And it would do you good if I defined what I mean by disciple. I'm gonna use the word a lot. A disciple is a follower. You can follow someone's teaching from a distance and be a disciple of Jesus, at least that much. But a disciple of Jesus follows Jesus and lives as Jesus would have us. But it even means more than that. Following Jesus means first that you have entered into a personal saving relationship with him. Being a disciple of Jesus doesn't begin with something you do. It begins with something Jesus did. The only way to be a disciple of Jesus is to be saved by Jesus. So to be a Christian means that we are a disciple of Jesus. There are no Christians anywhere who are not disciples. There are no disciples of Jesus who are not following Jesus. It's not possible. You cannot be a Christian, even though you said a prayer as a child, and not be a follower of Jesus right now. Selecting a box on a survey, or labeling yourself a Christian because your parents were Christians, or just because you went to church your whole life, or enjoy the preferences of Christianity does not make you a Christian. Christians are people who have real faith in Christ and who show it by resting their hopes and fears and lives entirely on him. They follow where Jesus leads. Their faith is real and tangible as we've learned in the book of James. You no longer set the agenda for your life. You go where God leads you through his word. You belong to God and you're not ashamed to say it. And what is the gospel then? Paul talks about it here in verse nine. You, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, can't earn this, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Friends, the gospel is not moralism like doing good for your neighbor. Well, the gospel is the good news of real events that happen. Jesus really was born of a virgin. And he lived and ministered with people and he continued to teach them to follow him. And he really died. And he really rose from the dead. You have to believe that if you believe the gospel. Jesus taught us that we needed a rescue because we're sinners. Not that just we would sin occasionally, but that we were sin. Every part of our human existence is corrupted by sin and under its power. 
Romans 8, 7 says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So thorough our sins rule over our minds, our understanding, our will, that we instinctively, in our flesh, turn away from him in disgust. He has to save us because we could never save ourselves. God has to redeem us. He has to give us faith to believe because we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Friends, before you came to Christ, you were dead, really dead. And it was only because God made you alive. Jesus came to lay down his life as a ransom for our sins and for whoever would turn and trust in him and they would be redeemed. They would be bought back from the slave market of sin. This is the gospel. The gospel isn't moralism. It isn't goodwill. It's the message of a holy God who came from heaven down to earth to live as a man, to die, to reconcile man with God by substituting himself and paying for the sins of everyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him. We have to understand that, Christian. Are you trusting in Christ alone this morning, my friend? Perhaps you're here because summer is over and fall is beginning and it's that time now to find a church. And we're happier here. Thrilled. You come into our midst this morning as one who is trusting in Christ to save you. Or are you a lone ranger? You've got this all on your own. If you were to finish your time on earth today, can you in confidence say that you know that you will spend eternity with God? God doesn't want us to, to live in doubts about our life after this. You don't have to live that way. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can place your trust in Jesus Christ alone. And then you can echo the words here that Paul says in verse 12, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced, I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has been entrusted to me and to follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Friend, I'm not ashamed to say that the only way to experience real life is through Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And so I implore you this morning to turn from your sins and repent of your way of life and to trust in him, to rely on him alone, follow him and be his disciple. And when you have called on God for salvation, you're calling on God to not look at you all by yourself, but through Jesus Christ. You are saying, God, don't look at my righteousness. It's all filthy rags. Don't look at my life. Look at your son. Count me righteous, not because of anything I've done or anything I am, but because of Jesus Christ alone. He lived the life I should have lived, and he died the death I deserved. And I renounce all other trust in this world. I trust in you alone, God. Look at Jesus. If you've done this, friends, Paul then has a challenge for us and really the thrust of chapter one. He says, disciples guard the gospel. Christians guard the gospel. Timothy is to guard the gospel like a treasure. Years ago, when I was younger and in shape, I played basketball, even coached basketball. And real simply, whether you like basketball or not, the, the goal is to, when the other team has the ball, what are you supposed to do? Well, if you're in the NBA, you just let them score, and then you hope you score more. But in high school, you guard the gospel, you guard the goal. And, and in part of that, you're guarding that person with the ball. You don't want them to score. You guard it. You defend it. You protect it. And Paul is saying here, verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that, have been, that you've heard from me and the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. It's important for us, Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we're commanded to guard the deposit that's been entrusted to us. We have to be careful to protect it. 
This isn't just the job of the elder, although it's extremely important for the job of the elder. But it's for you, Christian. You're to guard the gospel. If you change the gospel, you lose the gospel. And this is so prevalent today. You and I are not called to give another message, a, a different message than what God has given us in his word, a more palatable message. And we're to give the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. If we change the gospel, we lose it. A good illustration that I read this week from Mark Dever talks about a mail carrier's job. Consider a mail carrier's job for a moment. A mail carrier is not hired to visit the store, buy a box of cards, bring them to your front porch, sit down, write in the cards, stuff, lick, and seal, and address, and stamp, and then shove them in your mailbox. No, he or she is specifically hired to bring the message that someone else has written and has sent to you. The mail carrier is not to invent the message. He is supposed to deliver the message. This is what Christians are supposed to do. We're to deliver God's message. We don't change it. We guard the gospel. I mean, how would you like that? You sent a letter to your Aunt Ruth, and the mail carrier opened it and changed it. Nah, I'm not going to talk about that. That's kind of harsh. That's kind of mean. I'm not going to say that. You'd be mad. God doesn't like it either. Our job as a disciple is to guard the gospel and to be faithful in our deliverance of the gospel, to protect the gospel. Because if you change the gospel, you lose the gospel. And if we're doing our job here on earth, if we're guarding it, if we're protecting it, Paul says we will suffer. That's what Paul's moving towards here in the next two chapters. So number two, a disciple suffers for the gospel. Paul reminds Timothy of the tough road ahead of him. Living the Christian life is not one of ease and comfort. And if you understand living the Christian life is something that's full of comfort and ease, then I don't understand what you mean by living the Christian life. The scriptures tell us again and again to expect hardship, to expect persecution, and as we'll see in this book, to expect suffering. And Paul knew all about it, and he wanted to remind Timothy again so that he would be prepared and that he would remind others. It says in chapter two, verse one, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And Timothy is given the charge here not only to know the gospel, see all Christians should know the gospel frontwards and backwards, but not only guard it either, but to pass it on to know the gospel, to guard the gospel, and then to pass it on, to teach it to others. See, Paul explains the chain of ministry to Timothy. He must teach it to people who will then, in turn, teach it to more people, who will then, in turn, teach it to more people. Do you see the chain there that Paul brings? Paul, who is first, disciples Timothy, and Timothy, who is second, who is his disciples, are to, to find others, to disciple, to, to pass on the message, and then they take the message and disciple yet another. Do, do you see Am I connecting with you today? Got a lot of hand motions this morning, sorry. That's, that's part of the discipling that we do in our lives. And we have no reason to believe that Paul is executing some apostate calling here. It's not just for Timothy to do or just for the pastor. It's just for every Christian everywhere. This is the great commission. And so I asked this morning, friends, who are you discipling? You knew I was going to get there, right? Who are you discipling? If being a disciple is following Jesus, then discipling is helping others follow Jesus. Discipling others is doing deliberate spiritual good to help others follow Jesus. And one of my greatest discipleship ministries is right now right behind this pulpit, preaching on Sunday mornings. One of my aims in preaching is to help others follow Jesus. And yet I, I try to fill my schedule during the week with meeting with others. And for you friends, you should ask yourself if you're involved in teaching others who will be able still to teach others still. 
And parents, if you have kids in your home, you have a captive audience of little people or not so little anymore, are you discipling them? Are you helping them follow Jesus? And maybe you say, my, my kid's older now. I think I've lost that opportunity. I'm, I'm gonna let it go. Don't. They still live in your house. Stop feeding them. Don't stop feeding them. I mean, don't use that as an excuse. I know we feel. I feel all the time as a parent. Start now. Help them follow Jesus. That's our greatest task as parents. And for those of you, there's many here that don't have kids around. You have to be a little more creative. Look for people. Look for people to disciple. Christians should be occupied in some way of discipling and evangelism and attending Bible studies and leading Bible studies and studying the gospel and encouraging others to know it well. And for this church family, it means placing a high emphasis on teaching and preaching ministry. It involves getting involved with men's and women's Bible studies. We heard it this morning. Working in Awana is a great way to disciple others. So maybe you have and you have a busy schedule. I understand that. Maybe just say, this year, I'm going to commit just this year. And tell Donna that. She can handle it. Just say, just this year, I'm going to commit to Wednesday night so that I can be involved in discipling others. Helping others follow Jesus. Or committing to a care group. To commit lives to other people that meet on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. Or attending a core seminar. Do you guys know what the core seminars are this year? This is so important for us, and God ordained this without us planning it, that our two core seminars are discipling. So if you're unsure what that means, you can come at 9.15 in the chapel, and Dave will walk you through what the Bible says. Discipling or biblical counseling, which is intensive discipling, which is giving the Bible in, in certain situations so people can understand what God's word says in the midst of difficulties. So God, in his wisdom, ordained that we're, you're just gonna get a lot of this in the next 12 weeks. Because this is what a Christian should be involved in. If you come here every week and you just come to consume, you're missing out. Don't be a consumer, friends. Be a disciple who looks to train other disciples. David Wells has observed, it is very easy to build churches in which seekers congregate. It is very hard to build churches in which biblical faith is maturing into genuine discipleship. We can draw a crowd. Literally, seriously, we could, I could stop what we're doing this week, sit in our staff meeting, and, and devise all sorts of plans to fill this building. We could draw a crowd. We have to water down some of the commitment. Just come and go water down the message in some way. Polish up our looks. Probably get someone better looking than me up here. Would that be pleasing to our Lord? Would that bring real, long-lasting spiritual growth in our people's lives? And as elders, we don't believe it will. I'm not concerned whether we have 200 people here or 50 I'm concerned that we as a church function as a family. That we understand discipleship. That we just don't come in on Sunday, get what we want, and then leave, and then come back the next week. Friends, that's a consumer's mindset, and that is the American way. We need to be more than that as a church family. Don't just come to church on Sundays don't just look for what you can get. Look for ways that you can give. Look for people who you can pour your life into. Just consider this week. Use one meal just this week to have with others. I don't care if it's rice and beans. Just share a meal with someone else to do them some spiritual good to help them in some way to follow Jesus better. 
Use your spare time this week by pouring into someone else's life. Get a few people that you can text back and forth during the week to encourage them, to give them some verses that you've read, to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. And then trust the gospel to others who in in turn trust it to others still. The success of Edgewood Bible Church isn't what happens when I'm pastor. It's what happens when I'm gone. I mean, from the very beginning, I just want to encourage you. I'm not here for the long haul. Hopefully, and if the Lord prolongs his coming back, there's going to be another pastor here. Maybe he's better. Praise the Lord. And I want you as a church to be healthy so when that next guy comes, ministry continues on. What are you doing in your life, in your ministry? Who are you discipling now and entrusting with the gospel so that when you're gone and you will leave one day this earth, they can continue on in the ministry that you started? Well, there's a warning for us, though, in these two middle chapters. And the warning really is the second point that Christians must endure suffering and persecution and opposition to the truth. And Paul speaks from experience here in verse Chapter 2, verse 9, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. When, when opposition to the gospel comes, we have a choice, don't we? We can endure it, or we can avoid it by casting aside the gospel, thus removing the target from ourselves. Often in our lives, we want to hold the gospel in one hand and hold our comfort in the other. And we think, as a Christian, we can just walk down holding both at the same time. We believe that we value the gospel when something attacks our comfort, something attacks our faith. We need, we need both hands to make it through. And which one will you drop? The gospel or your comfort? When a neighbor or a coworker or a classmate comes at you, questioning your faith, mocking your commitment to Christ, over and over and over and over, which will you choose? The gospel or comfort? Will you let go of the gospel to hold on to your comfort? This is real, friends. This isn't just necessarily being mocked. It might be your job. It might be your reputation. It might be your livelihood. Which will you choose? Paul tells Timothy that you, we will need to make this choice, and he tells us the same thing. Do you not think that Paul made this choice years before? Where is he now when he's writing this letter? He's in prison, awaiting a death sentence. He left comfort years before. And he saw the sheer value of holding on to the gospel opposed to anything else in this world. Are you and I committed to being obedient only when the circumstances will come out in our favor? Are the circumstances the Lord of our lives or is Jesus Lord of our lives? Who determines what you will do with your life? Is it only worldly common sense or is it biblical common sense? Philippians 1.21 says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Is that verse true of you this morning? Perhaps you need to spend this afternoon looking at your life. Are you truly willing to serve Jesus no matter where he takes you? Or do you maintain control over your life? Jesus, I appreciate all you've done for me and saving me, but I've got this now. I've got the plan. This will be easier for me, easier for my family, thanks and all, but I want to be happy. Is suffering even in your vocabulary as a Christian? Have you built your life in such a way that you have effectively removed any possibilities that you will ever suffer, that you will ever go without? You see it in these verses. If soldiers and athletes and farmers endure for prizes less glorious and less lasting, can we not endure and suffer for the sake of the gospel? 
He continues in verse 11, the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And Paul uses this phrase, the saying is trustworthy. He uses it five times in these pastoral epistles. And each time Paul is wanting to communicate a truth that is self-evident. If you are a Christian, then you have died to your former life and now have life with life eternal with God. Your, your life is no longer your life, but, but it's his life in you. And if we endure, meaning as, as we live this life and prove our faith to be real, not fake, not convenient, but having substance, then we will reign with him. That doesn't mean that we will earn salvation. It means that our lives are proving that we're really his. Because if we deny him, if we live as if he isn't Lord, then have we been saved really at all? John MacArthur says about this verse, a person who fails to endure and hold on to his confession of Christ will deny him because he never belonged to Christ at all. It's not that you lost salvation, you never had it. And this verse echoes again of what James means in the second chapter of the epistle, right? It wasn't that long ago we covered it. And then Paul emphasizes yet again in chapter three, turn there in verse one, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. And he's talking about the church. People that come into the church, avoid such people. And he says, verse six, for among them are those who creep into households, see the church, household churches, and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. He says, everyone will see it. They'll be known. Friends, the, the days are not getting easier or clearer or cleaner. And we tend to think that all of it's just happening out there, but Paul says it's seeped into the households. It's seeped into the church. And we need to be aware. When, when we stop contending and guarding the gospel, we essentially forget all about it. And this happens in the church. And friends, the longer you follow Christ, the more difficulty will come. It says in verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know those Bible promises books? You know, when you're looking for a little encouragement, they have these books that are Bible promises and they list all these Bible promises. This isn't in there. But this is a promise of God. This is a promise of God. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Doesn't mean necessarily you lose your physical life, but you will lose your comfort in this world. You may be mocked, you may be rejected by your faith, you may experience physical suffering. But Christian, remember that following Christ is always worth it. The suffering is short compared to eternity. No matter what happens, following Christ is always worth it. You need to remember that. So as we've seen, the disciple guards the gospel, the disciple suffers for the gospel, and last, the disciple proclaims the gospel. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we wish to endure to the end, you cannot neglect the Bible. You can't live as a healthy Christian who doesn't read their Bible. And I don't mean opening up on Sundays when Jeff preaches. I mean you need to read the Bible regularly. 
I didn't say how long, I didn't say how much, but if you intend to eat food each day and stay alive and healthy, you must read the Bible every day to stay alive and healthy. It's an oxymoron to say you're a Christian and you don't read your Bible. In fact, if you call yourself a Christian and, you, and, and, and yet you are not regularly reading the Bible, I don't know what you mean that you're a Christian. I can't equate that. Christians love the Bible. They love the Bible. It's not always glorious to dive into Leviticus, but they love the Bible and the Gospels in Leviticus, let me tell you. It's in Numbers. It's in all of the scriptures. Christians love the Bible. And if you're here and you don't open it, you need to ask some serious questions of yourself this afternoon. Thomas Kramer said, we should read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest God's word. Our Bible reading should be regular. Our study should be diligent. Our meditation should be thoughtful. Our references to the Bible should be frequent. If we're Christians, this is what we're called to do, to feed upon God's word for us. And so friend, if you're here this morning and you don't read your Bible regularly, today is a new day and Lord willing, tomorrow will be. So start. And I wanna encourage you, tell someone that you're starting. Set aside the pride for a moment and say, I, I need to begin reading and I want you to hold me accountable. And ask them to encourage you. Repent this morning, ask the Lord for help to begin and then begin reading the Bible. And if you don't know where to start, can I encourage you? Start in 2 Timothy. Just read right along as I'm preaching. There's a reason that we give you this schedule ahead of time. Trust me, my secretaries have other work they could do besides printing that up and cutting it for you. I tell them to do that because I want you in the Bible where I'm preaching. That. I want you reading it ahead. I want you harassing me all week about what you're reading. Do you not have my number, my email? Seriously, I say this and I get one response. I, I'm tired of that. I want you in the word, friends. And if you don't know where to read, read this because it'll just, it'll, it'll make the word of God come to life as you've spent all week in that text. And then I get up to expound what I've spent all week studying and making real in your life. And then you spend all afternoon talking about what you read and what Jeff said and you just meditate and, and just, you just love God's word in that, in that moment, in that afternoon. Friends, you'll see a difference in your life. God will use that. And you'll get more out of your sermon if you spend your week meditating in that passage. Do you want to know what Spurgeon says about this? Zach does. Anyone else? Thank you. I'm going to tell you anyways. He who has been taught Scripture, steeped in Scripture, saturated with Scripture, is conscious of its permeating influence, and it gives him permanence of conviction like the crimson dye in cloth. The tint of scripture is not to be got out of the soul once fixed there. Bible truth influences thoughts, words, and deeds. It's pervading. He begins to eat and drink and sleep holy scripture. If you would scratch Charles Spurgeon, he would bleed Bible. He loved the word of God. Do you? Read the word. Can this be sent of, of us? This is the only way to live as a Christian is to be in the word. And then, I'm not done. He, he says to Paul, or to Timothy in verse one, in chapter four, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. He's looking forward yet, yet future. Verse two, preach the word. Be ready in, in season, not a season, repuve Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And Timothy is charged here as pastor of this church to preach, to proclaim, to herald. That's the primary job of a pastor. We can't hide the truth. We, we can't be scared or shy about it. We preach it. Not our personalities. Not our agendas. Not our opinions. We preach God's word. 
So whether you're here, this is your church or not, if you're just visiting, there's a whole list of good churches. If this isn't the church for you, I'm not offended. There's other good churches, but friends, listen to me. Find a church that preaches the word. That's the job of a pastor. Preachers have no license to preach anything other than the Bible. As a preacher, I have no authority to declare a message other than the word of God. I am not a talking hand. I'm a herald of the gospel. And Paul says, though, that that preaching involves more than just standing and speaking to a congregation for 45 minutes, although some of you think that's all that I do. He says in verse 2, be ready in season, not of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And I got to say, this is hard. It's a job that I feel unable to do on my own. That's why the Bible tells us that we have a plurality of elders and to rely on the Holy Spirit. And how should we do this job? Paul says, with complete patience and teaching. When I need patience. Great patience is needed when we're teaching. I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot in ministry. I had a former elder tell me that when I started. You're gonna repeat yourself a lot. I didn't believe him, but I do. You ever taught a class, you're repeating yourself. Because as humans, we need things repeated over and over and over. Parents, you know this to be true, right? How many times you tell your kids to pick up the shoes and we repeat things because we need to learn and and, and God is patient with us and repeating the same thing to us. And why do we repeat ourselves? Verse three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The warning here is for the congregation. He isn't warning Timothy of what he needs to do, but the congregation. Paul doesn't attack false teachers here. He rebukes the congregation. He rebukes you. If your heart is happy with watered-down, gospel-less preaching, then your ears will itch more and more for it. And Paul is attributing this responsibility to the congregation. And if you're a member of this congregation, if you faithfully give, if you pray for this church, then you are responsible to listen and encourage the preaching and teaching ministry to line up to what we say we believe as a church. Part of my job as a lead pastor who preaches primarily is to teach you the congregation of my job description because it's found in the Bible. And your job is to learn and to encourage and to pray and to hold us accountable as leaders. But pray for me. I don't grow tired of saying that. Pray for me. Pray for the other pastors and elders. You know, I did this this morning, our, my pastoral prayer, and I hope you've added it to your daily prayer list. We need your prayers. We need encouragement to keep pressing on. And Paul's encouragement in these next verses means a lot to me. He says there in verse five, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. Paul encourages him, but he opens himself up here at the end. Paul shows his humanity and humility here. He ends the letter with, please, Can you do this? And some people believe that the only way to inspire others is to look strong as if there aren't any issues that we're facing. Like we're all perfect in some way. But that's not what we find in scripture. I'm broken and I sin. I sin just like you, friends. And I need to repent just like you. And there are days where I want to quit. There are days when I wake up and I believe that driving a bread truck would be better than a pastor. 
their weaknesses in my life. So please don't feel like you have to measure up to me. How poor would that be? We look to Christ and follow him. He is the standard, and yet, as I follow him, I should be a model for others, and so should you, Christian. And our lives should always point to Christ. And Paul here is a model for us, and he's also weak and tired. And he's honest. He, he says at the end of this letter, he needs a friend. He's been abandoned. He's been crushed. Life's been hard. Letting people see your weaknesses doesn't spoil your ability to be an example. It just makes your example realistic and real. And Paul is being genuine here, and these last few verses are the last few words that we know of Paul. And as Timothy takes the mantle of preaching the gospel, Paul warns him. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to him, and people have deserted him. Then he ends here in verse 17. This is huge. And I love this. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God has always been faithful. Morning after morning, Paul would wake up and find that God was there. He was always faithful to Paul. Season after season, trial after trial, God was there with him, strengthening him, keeping him, encouraging him. I was always faithful. His anthem, his, his song was the faithfulness of God. And God will bring him and he will bring us safely home, he says. How about you, friend? Can you pause this morning just in a minute and, and recount the faithfulness of God in your life? If you haven't done this lately, can I encourage you to do this? I plan on doing it this afternoon. If you don't know yet, you're invited to our house afterwards as a kind of a going away open house for Tag and Tiffany, and I want to spend some moments just recounting God's faithfulness. God is faithful and he's worthy of our praise. Well, we've done a quick flyby over this letter from Paul to Timothy and it, it wasn't meant to be a thorough explanation. Instead, we're gonna spend the next 10 weeks, Lord willing, to do that. But as I began this morning, Paul is ending his ministry to the church and these last words are sobering. It's the end of his ministry here. Paul's end of life is much different than the beginning. And at some point for us, we find out that things haven't gone the way we might have hoped in our life. Life is different and, and hard. Disappointments have come. Tragedies. We fall ill or we lose a spouse and we mourn and grieve. In those moments, we might feel the best option for our life is to pull away, to separate Believing the lie that no one really cares. But friends, isolation won't help. This is not what Paul models here for us. He says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. In the most desperate moment in his life, he reaches not in for help, but he reaches out. He doesn't draw away from the fellowship of believers, Paul presses in. What will you do, friends? If you desire to live a godly life, Paul says you will suffer. Where will you turn in your suffering, in your trials? As you walk with the Lord in the midst of this, will you walk with us as a church? You know, fall brings so many new things, you know, new with kids going back to school, a fresh start, and 
I mean, some of you have been here for a long time, but you just kind of pop in and pop out and you haven't really committed to a church. Why? Don't continue to live your Christian life alone. Press into the church. We are not a perfect church. Not close. But this room is filled with people who are willing to walk with you in life. And I pray that we can be an encouragement to you as you walk with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a good day together. It's always a good day when we can gather together to worship you. And we recognize that we won't all be together like this ever again. Some are moving on. Some might not endure. Some might not make it to next week. Help us to remember that we're not promised tomorrow. Help us to love you. Help us to join together as fellow believers to be part of this church family. We gather this morning, we gathered together this morning under the banner of Jesus Christ. And I ask that you let your people be joined to one another in true Christian love so that the world out there might know that we are your people and that you are our God. We ask God that you would bring a great unity into our church family. That we'd be a one church family of one mind and one purpose, which is to delight in you and your glory for the good of all. Help us, Father, to live faithful lives unto you. For your honor and your glory, we pray. Amen.